Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of my conversation with Erica Elvis, Chief Strategy Officer at The Metals Company. So, Erica, what are some of the advantages of deep sea mining when we look at that compared to land-based mining? We talked a little bit about this on episode one, but I'd like to kind of have a more granular focus here. So if people are wanting to look at this, what are kind of the five advantages that you'd like to highlight at a very broad level of why deep sea mining provides a new opportunity for metal supply? Yep, Sure. So we've got high grades of four energy transition metals in a single ore. To get the metals in nodules, you would need to start three new mines on land. So that's helpful. It's abundant. In the clarion Clipperton zone, where the metals company has exploration contracts, we have several times more nickel, cobalt, and manganese in polymetallic nodules than in global reserves on land. So it's a very scalable resource in that sense. The third one, I'd say the fact that there are no toxic levels of deleterious elements makes it possible to generate no solid waste. You can productize 100% of nodule mass. Many operations on land, you know, if you look at the percentages of or grades of metal that we want and what the operation actually does, I mean, they're really kind of environmental waste management projects, right? Because you you know, you have a fraction of a percentage or a percentage of the metal you want, and the rest is, you know, handling of the tailings of the waste streams. So that's helpful. And then the fact that it's in a common geophysical or most common geophysical domain on the planet with lowest biomass and on the planet and far removed from human settlements. Again, that just gives you a very different operating profile, both in terms of impact on the environment and people. So there are still some challenges left in this space, and especially from the metal company's perspective, what are some of the obstacles that are still presented from a political issue, from communication areas, from areas where you still need knowledge? What are kind of three or four of the areas that are still presented challenges to deep sea mining? There are plenty. You know, maybe I can bucket them into two. One is uncertainty, and the other one is perception. With regard to uncertainty, you know, the regulatory framework is in advanced stages of development for the exploitation phase, but it's not set in stone yet. So it's constantly changing. So, you know, we kind of have to be nimble and constantly change and or adapt our environmental impact assessment program. That's where it hits us, you know, hardest because we're there's still a lot of basic science that we're doing and interacting with deep sea research institutions around the world. It's just lots of parties, lots of different ways of doing things and, you know, kind of very complex campaigns and even making sense of the data afterwards. I mean, that's quite a, quite a challenge, again, because they will, no commercial scale operations have ever taken place, right? So the level of uncertainty remains quite high until we actually do it. So that's hard to operate under. But on the perception side, you know, sometimes it feels like we're operating in two parallel worlds. There's one 
that is based on you know our own field work, our own you know campaigns and the data we're seeing. And then there's a world that we see in media coverage. And sometimes they're just, I mean, literally worlds apart. I'll give you one example. The subject of plumes that's usually often accompanies the issue of deep sea mining. The issue as follows. When our nodule collection robots pick up nodules, they also entrain about up to five centimeters of underlying sediment. We are trying to minimize it. So, you know, originally it was people hypothesized it would be 15, 30 centimeters. So we managed to get it down to five, but working to reduce it further. So over 90% of the sediment is separated from nodules inside the collector machine, and then it's discharged back at the seafloor. Now, if you read the media, you would leave with the impression that the suspended mud will travel for thousands of kilometers, hundreds of thousands, depending on how bold the speculation is, and then smother filter feeding life. So that sounds horrible. Now, we hired a world-leading expert in sediment dispersion. It's a Danish company called DHI, Danish Hydraulic Institute. They invested months and months in building a model. We then go into the field and now in our exploration area, we test the collector robot. And what we see is the discharged mud forms a very high density flow. It does not rise more than two meters vertically. More than 90% of it falls down pretty quickly within hours to days and within you know hundreds of meters to kilometers. So nowhere close to hundreds and thousands of kilometers that are being predicted. But you know, it's hard to change the perception because, you know, a little bit when we talked in the previous episode, we you know, I kind of mentioned, I feel like when something does not align with your intuition, something that is aligned travels further and gets amplified widely. But, you know, peer-reviewed papers published in science advances and pretty, you know, high-impact journals on this topic that reflect what I just told you, you know, they don't get a lot of coverage. And honestly, I, I mean, it's the perception issue is a big challenge because at the end of the day, People's perception is reality, and that's a tough one for us to crack. So going off of that, though, I guess, what are some of the views from the metals company and from others working in this space of how we can try to change some of these perceptions? I mean, I hear a lot about when I meet people and talk to others looking at metal demand and metal supply for the energy transition. A lot of people want to have all the technologies that are going to help mitigate the impact of climate change. But when you try to tell them that it's going to require these materials, there's often that perception issue or disconnect with the mining industry. But what are some of the views from the metals company of how we can change this or engage in conversations with one another to kind of bring us all back to reality that if we are wanting to meet these climate goals, if we are wanting to have this energy transition, it's going to require these metals and materials. And we're going to have to find ways to minimize as much environmental impact as possible and when you have other opportunities like deep sea mining that can do that, how can we even begin to engage in that conversation? It's just so difficult. Yeah, it is definitely difficult. I can't say that we have figured out a way, you know, a good effective way forward, but I have you know, just a few observations. One is sometimes we just have to acknowledge that deep sea mining has been made super controversial and people come with a lot of preconceived notions and we just ask people to suspend it and try to kind of have a more analytical framework you know if we were starting from scratch 
what are all the sources, what are their impact profiles, what is the economics, you know, what is the geopolitical implication of each source, you know, and national supply security implications, right? And just kind of before jumping to conclusions, just work your way through methodically, you know, through each lens, if you will, and then kind of have a more you know, balanced discussion on, okay, so <laughs> these are the options on the table. What would be a good way forward? I find that when we go through these processes with people in the same room, we tend to get to much better outcomes. If the public discourse in the media is just so low quality that, I mean, that's probably not the best format for engagement, but in-person stakeholder consultations, workshops, you know, and just kind of acknowledging the preconceived notions that people have and just asking people for permission to park them and just try to do the homework, do the heavy lifting, think this through, as opposed to just go with the intuitive response. I agree fully. And I think one of the things that I see on a daily basis that, you know, at University of Delaware, I took a deep sea mining class, which was very insightful. And I was able to go through that analytical process to look at the various different types of deposits and the techniques and really create this kind of objective look at deep sea mining. But in many cases, a lot of the schools that are putting forth development policies or sustainable development policies, you get these students and programs, they're not looking at it from a material perspective. They're not taking the time in some cases to sit down and learn about what are the options on the table, as you said. And I think we could do a lot better in the education system and in these development policy programs in Washington, D.C. and other places where we can, you know, take some time with students to discuss that if you want to enact X policy, you're going to have to have these types of materials to get that done. And where are they coming from and why does that matter? And just creating that formula in an educational setting, I think would do a lot of good because by the time I meet folks that are in university classes and they're ready to go out into the workforce, they already have these perceptions about mining. And if they don't take any time, it's going to be very difficult to change that when they're out there putting policy forward. So is there anything that you would like to mention before we, we end this podcast to those that remain skeptical? We've had, I think, a really good conversation in these two episodes but is there anything else that you would like to put forth or that you would like to ask someone who may be listening to this episode and have some doubts? What would be your advice to them? We talked about suspending things or parking things for a second and, and taking the things and looking at it objectively. But are there some other thoughts that you may have to someone who may be listening to this and saying, I'm still not sure? Well, being not sure is good. I'd <laughs> take that. <laughs> I, you know, by all means, remain skeptical. I mean, I think that's a good place from which to start. But my main advice would be do your homework before you arrive at a you know very tightly held opinion. If you read Greenpeace and WWF reports, that's great, but then also do you know go through the effort of reading peer-reviewed papers and life cycle impact assessments on resources like nodules and also invest in understanding the profile of where metals come from today, you know, because that would be helpful to understand to have the, the big picture. But basically, in a nutshell, it's, you know, inform yourself before you just adopt, you know, a headline from The Guardian. I think that's my request. Yeah, and I think it's just incredible. I think some people don't expect or don't realize that there's that people in this sector and people that are working on these issues are very open to having dialogue and talking with one another about these really complex questions of the future. And just being willing to discuss that is a huge step forward if we can just begin that conversation. So the last question that I like to ask all of my guests, if you were to meet someone on the street, 
who knew nothing about minerals or mining, but were really passionate about you know the environment and climate change, what would you tell them if they asked you, why do minerals matter? Why are we even talking about mining? I'd say it's what the material basis of human civilization is made of. And if you take minerals away, we are pretty much back to being hunters and gatherers. They do matter. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for coming on the podcast and having a very timely and important conversation about deep sea mining and new frontiers in metal sourcing. I look forward to future conversations and hope to have you back on the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, and thanks for joining us on another insightful discussion on A Rock in a Hard Place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock in a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website at Mineral Choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out to me. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. We'll see you next time.